I'm Nathan Rutherford, and welcome to Myth Madness. Welcome back. After a nice summer break, it's time for episode 23 of Myth Madness. In the previous 22 episodes, I focused on Greek mythology. I went over the Greek myths of creation and introduced each of the gods, trying to show how they were born, how they gained their responsibilities, and the main myths of each. In those episodes, I was careful to point out the different versions that exist for different myths and told what source we have that version from and what date that source is approximately. My goal was twofold. First, I wanted to show that different versions of the myths simply existed. In a lot of retellings of Greek myth today, one version of the myth may be the only one told, maybe the one presented by a particularly well-known Greek or Roman poet, Ovid, for example, or sometimes they are morphed together to form a longer story. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with this. These retellings are for entertainment, and they introduce more people to mythology. But this way of doing things can leave out one important point, and this was my second goal, to show that different versions may reflect different areas of Greece, or what was the case in different time periods. Telling you the different versions might give you an idea of how a particular story changed over time, often over the course of hundreds of years, at the same time as other changes happening in the wider Greek society. They can also tell you what might have stayed the same, or was universal throughout the land. The reason I could point all of that out was because we are very lucky to have so many Greek myths survive into our modern world. There's a whole bunch of stuff to compare. We still have a lot of stuff we don't know, but there are things that, although they may not be clear in one source, are then backed up by another. The thing is, is this is a really special part of Greek mythology and it's not always the case with other cultures' myths. For that reason, I thought that in the next few episodes, I'll take a break from Greek myths. I will come back to the myths of the Greek heroes in the near future. I promise. But I wanted to spend a few weeks in between with a mythology that I feel contrasts nicely with what I did with the Greek myths already. One of the reasons I started my podcast with Greek myths was because a lot of people are familiar with ancient Greece and Greek myths in general. But you may not have heard about Hittite mythology, or know who the Hittites were. Over the next few episodes, I'm going to talk about Hittite myths, the ones we know anyway. So first off, who were they? The Hittites were an ancient people that built an empire in the hot, dry plains and mountain valleys of central Anatolia the plateau that makes up most of today's Turkey. The Hittite Empire existed from about 1650 BC to 1190 BC, but their civilization also goes back in some form even earlier. That makes the Hittites an incredibly ancient people, more so than the Greeks. In my previous episodes, I talked about ancient Greece and often shared sources from archaic Greece and classical Greece, so approximately from 800 BC to 300 BC, and afterwards. Sometimes I talked about that earlier predecessor civilization of ancient Greece, the Mycenaeans, when I talked about the possible origins of Greek gods. The Mycenaean Greeks were around from roughly 1750 BC to 1050 BC. That means that the Hittite Empire existed at the same time as the Mycenaeans, hundreds of years before Hesiod, Homer, Ovid, and Apollodorus. In broad strokes, let me tell you about the Hittites. 
Their origins are fairly complicated, and to top it off, they didn't even really call themselves Hittites. The Hittites were actually made up from at least two different groups, and this is going to become really important when I talk about their myths and religion later. The two main groups were the Hattians and the Neshites. The first group, the Hattians, were from Anatolia. They probably go back to before 2500 BC, so almost four and a half thousand years ago. The Hattians lived in an area that is almost smack dab in the middle of modern Turkey. They lived in the valleys surrounding the Kuzilmak River, which the later Hittites called the Marishantia. These riverlands were broken up into a series of small city-states run by priest kings. The main city was called Hattush, or Hattusa, and around the Marshantia River, the Hattian people lived for centuries. They traded timber and wool to visiting foreign merchants, and occasionally they fought amongst themselves. And then something changed. Sometime before 2000 BC, new groups of people arrived in Anatolia. The Luwians were a people who eventually ended up in western and southern Anatolia. Another group eventually ended up in central Anatolia, very close to the Hattians. These people called their language Nasili, and they built a city called Nesha in the area. I'm going to call them Neshites. These Neshite tribes either conquered the Hattians or gradually absorbed them. But either way, by war or peace, the two cultures were basically combined together. I use the word Hittites to describe the combination that came out of these two groups coming together. But you should know, some archaeologists also use the name Hittite as another name for the original Neshite group too. These new Hittite tribes were eventually united by a man named Hattusili, and the old Hattian city of Hattusa became the capital of the new Hittite kingdom. The Hittites kept the name of the old Hattians and called their kingdom the Land of Hatti. The Hittites were ruled by an autocratic great king who served as head of the army, a judge, and the high priest of the Hittite religion. The king had his royal court in Hattusa. This was the case most of the time, but there were a couple times where a king moved the capital to another city. The king was helped in his rulership by a number of officials, often with ties to the royal family, and some of them had some kind of independent authority too. One early king established a kind of general assembly called the Pancus. It was basically a court, and it made laws that even the king had to follow. The Pancus was eventually gotten rid of during the later period of the Hittite Empire, when the king became much more of an important central figure. Over the course of Hittite history, there was a lot of murder and intrigue between different rivals for the throne. Brothers killed brothers, sons killed fathers, uncles killed nephews. These fights between members of the royal family caused significant problems for the Hittites at various points in their history. There was also the problem of fierce mountain tribes living in the region surrounding the Hittite homeland. They often raided towns, and one group, the Kaskas, actually captured or sacked the capital city Hattusa several times. But the Hittites also made lots of treaties and alliances with smaller states across Anatolia. They accepted less powerful kings as vassals, often forcing them to accept Hittite overlords. They also created huge networks of trade and tribute that made the royal court at Hattusa very rich. The Hittite Empire eventually became a major military power in the ancient Middle East, 
one Hittite army actually made it all the way to Babylon in modern-day Iraq. Babylon was probably the largest city in the world at that time and was the cultural capital of the entire Middle East region. But the Hittites sacked the city, ending the ruling dynasty that was descended from the earlier and famous Babylonian king, Hammurabi. The most powerful Hittite king was a man named Supaliuma I. I love his name, Supaliuma. He lived around 1350 BC. He expanded the empire to its largest extent and conquered the territory of Aleppo in Syria. This was a very important event, as control of this region linked the Hittites with trade routes running through the rest of the Middle East, and they would continue to fight over this area for years to come. Supaliuma conquered smaller states in Anatolia and also fought against the powerful empires of the Assyrians, Egyptians, and another kingdom called Mitanni. Supaliuma made the Hittites the dominant power in the Middle East for a time. In 1274 BC, the Hittites fought the famous Battle of Kadesh against the ancient Egyptians. This was a huge battle fought in what is now Syria. The armies fought with horse-pulled chariots and possibly had 6,000 of them in combat in total the most chariots ever used in any battle, ever. Later, the Hittite Empire entered a period of decline before facing the entire collapse of their civilization around 1180 BC. This was after the capital Hattusa was burnt to the ground, probably by mountain tribes. It's very cool stuff, and those are just some broad strokes to give you an idea of how important the Hittites were in the ancient world, hundreds of years before ancient Greece even though a lot of people are not really familiar with them today. But obviously, this is a pod about mythology, so I'm more interested in talking about the religion and myths of the Hittites and the parts of their culture that complement that. But if you want to know more about Hittite history, especially what different kings did, what lands they conquered, and what happened to the Hittites after their civilization collapsed, I'd suggest checking out another podcast called The Ancient World by Scott Chesworth. He's been doing his podcast for a few years, and he goes into detail on the history of several ancient cultures from the Middle East, like the Hittites, Assyrians, Babylonians, and Egyptians. But let's get back to Hittite mythology. I wanted to talk about the origins of the Hittites, and how the Hattians and Neshites came together, because that same mixing was very important for the development of the religion as well. The myths of the Hittites included gods and goddesses originally worshipped by the Hattians, Neshites, and others. Let's start with the Hattians. We don't know a lot about them, but we do know that they had a storm god named Taru, and his special symbol was a bull. His mother was the mother goddess Kataha, or Hanahana. The Hattians had a sun goddess named Runshimu, and a moon god named Kasku. Gods related to water and earth were also very important to the Hattians. The names of various Hattian gods were carried over into later Hittite mythology. The Luwians were the group of newcomers that settled in western Anatolia, while the Neshites went more to the east. I think the Luwian gods might give an idea of some of the original gods of the Neshites before they mixed with the Hattians. Tarhund was the most important god of the Luwians, and he was also a storm god. So in some ways, he is similar to the Greek Zeus. Tarhund had a chariot that was pulled by horses. In art, he was drawn with a beard, a kind of kilt, and in one hand he held an axe or hammer, while in the other hand he held lightning bolts. Tarhund was a powerful protector god. He used his axe or hammer to smash enemies, but he was also a fertility god and was prayed to to allow things to grow. 
probably because as a storm god, he was also responsible for rain. Tiwaz was the Luwian sun god. He was very important and often called father. He was also associated with oaths. Sheep were very important to him. His wife's name was Cambrashipa, and their son was Runtia. Runtia was a god of the hunt and was linked to deer. He is shown with a bow and arrow. His wife was the goddess Ala, who we don't know much about. Shanta was a Luwian god of death. Not much is known about him, but worshippers did call his name when they wanted to curse their enemies, hoping Shanta would eat them or feed them to dogs. The Gulza were the Luwian goddesses of fate, and there were undoubtedly more, but it's hard to tell which was specifically Luwian and which were not. The Hittites called their homeland the Land of a Thousand Gods, and there were really good reasons for this. The people believed the world was inhabited by many, many gods, goddesses, and spirits. Gods lived in the heavens above the earth, and in the realm below, too. Plus, every mountain, tree, freshwater spring, river, or even rock had its own spirit. Everything was believed to be alive in some way, even something like gold or fire itself. This is not really a specifically Hittite thing, either. Many polytheistic religions do this too, from Japan to native people in North America. Even ancient Greece did this. All the nymphs and river spirits that pop up in Greek myths show something very similar to this idea. When the ancient Greeks and Romans began traveling to other parts of the Mediterranean, they came in contact with other cultures. They often looked at the gods and goddesses in these new cultures, accepted their existence, and identified them with some of their own. Sometimes whole new cults developed. The Hittites looked at the people surrounding them, and they did something a little bit different. They were much more extreme, and did a lot of borrowing of other gods. The Hittites had their main gods that they got from the Hattians and predecessors, but they also absorbed many gods and goddesses from their neighbors and the people they conquered. When the Hittites took over a city, they even moved statues and idols of foreign gods to their own temples to take them on. But it wasn't a my-gods-are-better-than-your-gods kind of thing. It was meant to be respectful. The Hittites praised these gods, included them in their worship, and sought their permission for moving the statues and idols. The songs of these gods were even sung in the original foreign languages. And often, instead of always merging these gods with their own, the Hittites kept the original names of these gods, even if they were very similar to some of the Hittites' own. The result is that the Hittite religion is absolutely full of different storm gods, sun gods, sun goddesses, and others. The Hittites had distinct local equivalents of different gods. A storm god from here, a storm god from there, a sun goddess from this city, another one from that one. It gets very, very complicated very, very fast. Maybe the Hittites thought that some of these were the same gods with different names. Maybe they didn't. The growth in all the gods and goddesses they worshipped was not done in a systematic way. All that being said, though, the Hittites did have a core group of the most important gods and goddesses, and most of their names, but not all, came from the Earlian Hattian people. The most important one was Tarhun, or Tarhuna, the storm god. He is very, very similar to both the Hattian Taru and the Luwian Tarhunt. He was a weather god, responsible for thunder and lightning, but he also brought rain that was important for farmers' fields and good harvests. Tarhun was believed to rule over the heavens. In art, he had a beard, wore a tall, pointed hat, and held a lightning bolt with three points. 
he also rode a chariot pulled by bulls. The wife of Tarhuna was a sun goddess. She is a later version of the Hattian sun goddess Wurunshima. The city of Arena was the center of her cult. Tarhun and the sun goddess had several children. One of their sons was Telepina. Like his parents, he was a very important god as he was responsible for fertility and farming. The daughter of the sun goddess was Mazula, and she in turn had a daughter named Zintui. The two of them were worshipped closely with the sun goddess. Karunta was the Hittite god of wild animals and hunting. His special symbol was the deer. He is very similar to the Luwian god Runtia, and there is likely some link between the two. Another important goddess was Hanahana. Her name uses the word Hana. This is the Hittite word for grandmother, so Hanahana means grandmother-grandmother. Naturally, she served as a mother goddess. That's just a tasting of various Hittite gods and goddesses I'll be talking about in the next few episodes. There was also a moon god and a couple other solar deities too, and since it's the land of a thousand gods, many, many more. Before I finish today, I want to talk about one more group of people that was very influential on the Hittite culture and mythology. Those people are called the Hurrians. So who were they? The Hurrians were an ethnic group that lived on the border regions of what is now eastern Turkey, northern Iraq and Syria, and western Iran. Like the Hattians, they go back to around 2500 BC and controlled several rich city-states in the region. Over the course of their history, the Hurrians were close eastern neighbors of the Hattians and Hittites. Unlike with other cultures of the ancient Middle East, the Hurrians did not seem to have had very many cities built around palaces and large temples. Hurrian communities became the vassals of many ancient Middle Eastern rulers and various empires, especially the Hittite Empire, which contained a large population of Hurrians. As I mentioned before, the Hittites often completely adopted foreign gods into their religion, and they did that with the Hurrians more than anybody else. In fact, when I go more into specific Hittite myths in the next few episodes, some of them are very much of Hurrian origin, or at least have close Hurrian versions. This process occurred gradually, but the Hurrian influence grew over time. Eventually, in the 13th century BC, the Hittite king actually started major religious reforms. The Hurrian gods were officially incorporated in among the Hittite gods. The confusing, ever-growing mess of overlapping gods and goddesses was made a little bit more simple. A number of Hurrian gods began to be officially seen as direct equivalents of Hittite gods. Some of them were already very similar and likely worshipped together anyway. And that's all for today. This episode was intended as an introduction to the Hittite civilization and all the different things that mixed together to influence its mythology. In the next episodes, I will go into more detail on the surviving myths of the Hittites and Hurrians. Stay tuned, and thank you for listening.